Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. Alex Honnold exploded onto the climbing scene in 2008 after a free solo of Moonlight Buttress in Zion National Park. Now one of the most famous adventurers in the world, he climbs without a rope, without a partner, without any gear to attach himself to the wall. If he falls, he dies. In his new book, Alone on the Wall, he recounts his seven most astonishing achievements thus far, including free soloing Sendoro Luminoso in Mexico, climbing the Fitz Traverse in Patagonia. Honnold says, if I have a certain gift, it's the ability to keep myself together in places that allow no room for error. I somehow know, in such a fix, how to breathe deeply, calm myself down, get on with it. Alex Honnold will be in Utah on December 2nd. He'll be at REI in Salt Lake City on December 2nd from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. He joins me for the hour. Alex Honnold, uh, welcome to the program. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Uh, so how did uh, you get into uh, to climbing? Started indoors? On yeah, I started, um, I started climbing in Sacramento when I was a kid, just uh, at the climbing gym. So 10, 10 years old or so? Yeah, maybe 11, I think, when the gym opened, and, uh, and I started just climbing indoors all the time. So, uh, you know, a lot of kids like doing that. What what drew you to the wall? I don't know. I think the same thing everybody else gets drawn to. Um, you know, as a kid, it's just so fun to swing around. Like, I'd always liked climbing on trees and, and buildings and you know, climbing on the roof and, and uh, playing on jungle gyms, you know, everything. And so, you know, the climbing gym just seemed like a natural extension. Um, and so you went to high school. I think you went to Cal Berkeley Engineering for a little while. Uh, for one year before one I year. dropped out yeah. to uh, to be a homeless rock climber. Uh, you got really good grades. I think high school was four point six seven or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I got straight A's through high school, but um, so could, could but yeah, have... I just like wasn't super passionate about university, and then you know just wanted to go rock climb as much as I could. Rock climbing is your passion, obviously. Um, so what, how'd you make that transition from the indoor wall to, to outdoors? Um, it's sort of a, a gradual, you know, gradual thing, but throughout my, my teenage years, I would climb outside from time to time, you know, like on school breaks and, uh, little excursions with, with friends from the gym. And so I climbed outside a little bit and I sort of learned the basics. And then, uh, once I dropped out of university, I started going outdoors more often and and then I stole my mom's minivan, and then it's sort of like living on the road yeah. in different climbing areas. And uh, yeah, so basically, I just you know eased into it, climbing outside all the time. Are you still you're still in your van? Uh, yeah, well now I'm in a, the the minivan that I stole died. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so you got a you got a new van, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I've been living in the same van for for almost eight years now. Is that just you, you just want to be mobile? I guess, you know you you've got resources you could buy home wherever you wanted. I guess at this point. Um, kind of, but, uh, I mean, that's pretty common for climbers to, to live in a car just because you're constantly following different seasons, going to different climbing areas. Um, yeah, it's all about being mobile. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like to say my home isn't that great, but the backyard is amazing. Yeah. You know, wherever I park it, like yeah. if I'm parked in Yosemite, mm-hmm. you step out of the van and you're like, well, this is a pretty nice place to live for a few months a year. So we'll talk about, you know, the danger and the risk and all that. People are fascinated. Um, you know, even people who don't do that in their in, in their personal lives i've described myself uh but part of this is what beauty of nature you, like you say you have the best backyard in the, in the world yeah i mean that's certainly part of it just the aesthetics you know being in the most beautiful places in the world seeing amazing views um i mean that that definitely is, is part of it yeah uh so did you i guess you start out probably traditional way uh, you know ropes but it were you always solo Do you have oh partners? actually i mean just to be clear the soloing that i'm doing 
makes up probably 5% of my total climbing. I mean, I'm okay. generally climbing with partners and ropes and, and climbing in the gym and, you know, doing conventional forms of climbing. The, uh, the, the free soloing, I mean, just because that's what I'm known for, is still only a small small part of my climbing. And you do you do practice these routes before you free solo? I yeah, generally I rehearse them um, beforehand or at least, you know, have climbed them. Uh, I mean, not always. I mean, sometimes I'm seeking out, you know, more adventurous experience, and so I go up on something without having done it before just to uh, just to have an adventure, you know. Mm-hmm. What what is it about the you say it's only five percent but that of course that's what you're famous for what what is it about free solo? What, what I don't know. I mean, it's just a it's a more I mean it's certainly a more demanding experience since it's so much higher consequence. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, I feel like it's just more rewarding as a result. You know, it requires you to be it requires you to perform at a much higher level, and so as a result, it just feels more satisfying. I have to say, uh, I you know watch some of your videos. And by the way, you can go to alexhonnold.com. Um, and and in, in some cases, you're 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 almost hanging uh, off off the wall. You know, you're you're underneath a, an outcropping, one one hand in a in a crack. Yeah. And, and I I just get that <laughs> vertigo in the pit of my stomach. I'm not even climbing. Um, how well, do you, you just need uh, you need twenty years of practice? I, I guess so. Scary. Practice, uh, you know. I guess it is practice. You know, you you couldn't get me out out there, I guess, because I don't know if I don't think I could handle the fear. You, how do you handle the fear? Well, I mean, it's not so much handling the fear as it's like gradually broadening my comfort zone until that just doesn't seem that scary. You know, I couldn't have done something like that the first the first five years I went climbing either. But over the years, I've just sort of gotten more and more comfortable with that sort of thing, and now now it seems reasonable. Mm-hmm. So easing into it, uh, becoming more skilled as you as you go along, but still in the middle of some of that, some of that, I guess somewhere in your in your mind, there's there's got to be that that risk, that fear. No, I mean, so generally with the big free solos, so it's not as if there's any pressure for me to go up there. I mean, there's no obligation to go free solo walls. So I mean, if I feel a lot of fear about it, then I just don't go up. Hmm. So basically, the free solos wait until I'm totally comfortable and. And there is no real fear for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, nat- naturally, fear does come into play, and that, that's like when something unexpected happens, or uh, you know, like I break a handhold, or an animal comes out, or starts to rain, or who knows what. You know, like something crazy happens. I mean, then then I'll feel, you know, the same kind of fear that anybody would. And then it's just a matter of you know reining that back in and, and trying to uh, you know maintain control. Mm-hmm. Do you do you think? Uh, is that a matter of practice? Can anybody do that, or do do you think you have a special yeah? No, so gift that's that? very much a matter of practice. I think. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that. I think that the reason the fear is so crippling for a lot of people is just they don't really experience enough fear in a way, or that or they don't you know get enough practice with the the reining it in back, reining it back in part. Mm-hmm. But no, um, I feel like fear should be like any other random feeling in your body. You know, like hunger or something, where you you should be able to to register, I'm feeling fear, but then sort of set it aside and continue doing whatever it is that you, you know, intend to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the same way, I mean, people are used to dealing with hunger, being like, well, I'm hungry, but I'm going to eat in a couple hours, and so I'm sure it's fine, and then just set that aside. You know? But of course, there there's a whole range of risk, and that's, I guess, one of the lessons you could you could learn from a climber like yourself is risk assessment. Um, you're, you're up there if, you know, the ultimate is you you fall you die 
So you have yeah, to well, assess so, that risk. I mean, when you say risk, I mean, I like to differentiate between risk and consequence. Consequence being, you know, what will happen if you fall off. I mean, with a free soloing, if you fall off, it's super high consequence. You, you most, almost certainly will die from most places. But the actual risk, the chance of falling off, is really hard to determine without knowing, you know, the amount of preparation that went into it and the, the relative level of fitness and the difficulty of the climbing. I mean, so, so for me, the ideal thing is to actually have extremely low risk and that's generally how I solo is when I feel 100% confident and, and comfortable up there. So it's very low risk, which is high consequence. Hmm. Uh, and you, going back to you know some of the things that have happened, you, you've had animals jump out at you and surprise you? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was stung by bees and had birds fly out of cracks and just random things like that. But, I mean, nothing nothing truly crazy, yeah. which is little surprises. So that brings me to another lesson, which is focus. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. if you're... If you're Free soloing, or or you just just climbing, you're going to have to have a, you know more focus than if I'm in my backyard getting stung by a bee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I suppose so. But it it also just sort of naturally happens. I mean, if you're up on a wall like that, you're just instinctively focused. You know, little things like like a bee sting just don't really seem that significant when you're when you're 100 focused like that. I guess it does give you perspective, doesn't it? You're you're on a wall that big. Yeah, I mean, people always ask me, like, oh, what happens if you get stung by a bee? You know, you'll you'll fall off and you'll die. And you're like, no. Like, if you get stung by a bee, you're just like, ow, that kind of hurt. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't doesn't really phase you at all. Uh, you described a, a climb in Borneo where mist was a problem. Uh, and it made things slippery, I guess, if it, if it came all the way up to where you where you were. Yeah. So there, there there's a full range of things you face. Yeah, the, I mean, that was rope climbing with you know, an expedition partners. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was extremely hard to climb the wall whenever the, the, the mist came up from the jungle and like made everything super wet. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about, about risk and, and, uh, the, th- I don't know, it's the thrill or it's, it's, it's the fascination people have with, with what you do and, and other climbers like you. I wonder if you talk a little bit about, uh, and you write about this in the New York Times, uh, Cliff Bar fired you and uh, some other people, including Steph Davis, who I've talked to, is based here in Utah, uh, because they're, I guess their assessment, they didn't want to be supporting something they view as, viewed as excessively risky? Yeah, that, that was their official line, which is that they uh, weren't comfortable with that level of risk taking. What, what do you say, what did you say to that, to remind us, you wrote about it? Well, in my op-ed, I just said that that's a personal decision and that they can, you know, they're a private company, they can choose whatever they want. And, you know, they can evaluate risk in the same way that I evaluate risk. You know, and the things that I'm doing, I feel totally comfortable with, and I've, I feel like I've made good decisions. But, um, you know, Cliff Bar obviously should make its own decisions for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, you know, they fired uh, Dean Potter, among others, and then Dean wound up dying in, in a wingsuiting accident six months later. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously that... That is justified to some extent, right? I wonder if you talk a little bit about that. It's 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 hard to lose friends. You you lost a friend, Sean Leary, as well. Uh, they, yeah, Sean was a much closer friend and, and um, mm-hmm. a more regular climbing partner, but that, also died in a wingsuiting accident. Does that affect in any way your your climbing? Make you more cautious? No, I mean it. Uh, you know, re- reinforced my my decision to never base jump or wingsuit. For sure. Yeah, that's how they died, wasn't it? Yeah. Space um, jumping, yeah. But the thing is, I mean, they both died in something totally unrelated to rock climbing. So, I mean, it'd be as if they died in a car accident and, and then, you know, ask what impact that has on my climbing. 
Mm-hmm. Like, well, it doesn't really have a huge impact on my climbing, but um, I mean, obviously, it does make me stop and think about you know the bigger decisions in life. Like, do do I enjoy what I'm doing? Why why am I doing it? You know, am I happy with my life? Those kinds of things. And you've talked about how you 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 put rock climbing in context. So you're not you're not curing cancer or anything. It's 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 rock climbing. Yeah, that's that's for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just an enjoyable enjoyable sport, but it's not not too important in the grand scheme of things. That brings me back to this fascination that we have, and I think a lot of us do have this. Uh, you know, they're uh, you know they're not making films about cancer surgeons and such. Maybe we should, but uh, um, I don't know. This is is this fascination with defying death, with with extreme risk. What it what I don't know what what this, is, this fascination we have. It's definitely there. That's why people pay yeah, attention. Yeah, I'm starting to think it's because. Uh People don't like to think about their own mortality that much. Like, so I've been doing a lot of a lot of radio interviews with with this book tour, and uh, I mean, people frequently ask me, like, you know, have you ever thought about death? Like, do you think you're going to die? And I'm like, well, I'm talking about death for probably three hours a day now, doing different <laughs> interviews. But I'm like, the bigger question is, do you think about death? Because you're going to die the exact same as I am at some point, you know, relatively soon in the grand scheme of things. And, you know, like, have you really considered it? Because, I mean, I've certainly spent a ton of time thinking about it and thinking about the way in which I want to lead my life and w- whether or not my decisions are worth it. Um, but, I mean, everybody should be having that same kind of frank, you know, evaluation with themselves. And I think most people prefer not to because they prefer not to think that, you know, or they'd, they'd rather not think about their own death too much. Mm-hmm. So this is maybe a vicarious way. You can, you can project that thinking onto a rock climber. Yeah, I, I mean, suppose. yeah, I don't know. And I mean, and so with the risk taking, actually, after um, after Dean died, I wrote an op-ed for uh, for for Time Magazine. I think wrote a little essay about about risk taking because it was so annoying to me that so many people were condemning Dean for for excessive risk taking or like you know what a you know what a crazy daredevil. Because I was basically like everybody's going to die, but you know it's all about choosing how you lead your life and and what you're comfortable with and the things that you find value in. Um, I don't know. I just feel like people. Should, should make their choices, hmm. like consciously, you know, mindfully. Like, this is what's important to me, and I'm willing to lead my life this way. So now, now, as you say, three hours a day, you're talking about death. Uh, because you're on, this tour, on the tour, you're talking to people like me. Uh, what, has that made you more reflective, or is it, is it annoying to you, or what, uh, what does that do? No, it doesn't. I mean, it doesn't bother me at all. I'm, you know, it's not as if I went up and did all these free solos that I ever haven't considered all these things before. You know, so naturally, I mean, I've thought all this through and and, uh, and sort of made my choices with my life, you know, the things that, that I feel are most important to me. You know, I, I certainly don't mind talking about, you know, risk. And, I mean, these are all important things. It's just that, you know, I mean, I've thought about them for years mm-hmm. and, and sort of settled into to what I feel good about. Mm-hmm. But I feel like really other people should be thinking about it for themselves. You know, like my, my choices are sort of set to some extent. As you say, we're we're all going to die. It's a matter of perspective. Uh, if you do something risky, you might die earlier in life than you would have. Does uh, the flip side of that is that one of the stereotypes is it makes you feel more alive? Does that does that enter in? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I feel like that's like a little flippant. It's not so much that makes you feel alive as that it allows you to have the experiences that you find most meaningful in life. You know, I mean, if if leading the life and you see fit runs a, you know, a risk of, of having a slightly shorter life overall. I mean, I feel like then it's just a matter of whether or not that's a, 
you know, whether or not it's a, a worthwhile trade-off to you, I guess. Now, for people who subscribe to a religious faith, might see someone like yourself uh, as, as taking even a higher risk, uh, uh, or from their perspective, you're, uh, you're an atheist, I believe? Yeah. And so this, uh, from your perspective, this is it. And so some people might say, well, that's, that, that makes the stakes even higher. There's, you don't view there's an afterlife, so... Yeah, though, I mean, people who subscribe to, to religious belief would think that the stakes are even higher for me since I'm probably going to hell forever. Well, there's that part of it, I guess, <laughs> as well from their perspective. But, but what you know, this, if, if this, is, this is the only life you've got, um, why risk it to, to that extent? I guess it would be the question that I could hear someone asking. Well, I feel like you should flip it around the other way, that this is the only life I have. I have to lead it the way that I find most beautiful, you know, that I should be doing this, the thing that I find most important. Um, since I only have one chance to do it. Hmm. Let's take a break. When we come back more with uh, rock climber Alex Honnold, uh, he's uh, famous for uh, some some incredible uh, free solos, uh, from, for some other climbing, some speed records as well. Uh, he's doing what he loves out there in the mountains, and uh, fortunately he's, he's able to make a living at it. He's uh, got some sponsors, and he's out with a, a new book called Alone on the Wall, in which he describes uh, several of his um, biggest achievements. One of those, I'll have him talk about this when we come back, uh, the one that brought him uh, fame, uh, widespread fame, and that is uh, free solo up uh, Moonlight Buttress in Zion National Park right here in Utah. Uh, more following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Humanities, proudly celebrating its 40th anniversary empowering Utahns to improve their communities through active engagement in the humanities. Details at utahhumanities.org. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. Long before television and movies, performing artists traveled to their audiences. Competing circuits were organized as railroads connected communities, and vaudeville, a name derived from a French phrase meaning worthy of the city's patronage, became popular. Towns like Logan, Utah, far from major cities but with access to railroads, benefited from this arrangement and hosted famous performers such as John Philip Sousa, Abbott and Costello, the Marx Brothers, George Burns and Gracie Allen. When the Thatcher Opera House burned down in Cache Valley in 1912, another theater, The Lyric, was up and running within a year. Why? Probably to keep the routing. Performers still tour the country today. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, featuring a full season of touring, performing artists. Thanks for joining me for Access U Time. Tom Williams, I'm talking with the rock climber Alex Honnold. Uh, he's now known as one of the most famous adventurers in the world. You can uh, see his films. Uh, you can see some video uh, by going to his website, alexhonnold.com. Uh, he's out with a book describing uh, several of his uh, biggest adventures. Alone on the Wall is the name of the book. And uh, he'll be in Utah at REI in Salt Lake City, December 2nd, 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 uh, PM. He's with me for the hour. You can join this conversation if you would like to interact with Alex Honnold. Here are the ways you do that. You can join us on Twitter. Use the hashtag AccessUtah. We are uh, on email. Our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And uh, you can join us toll-free by telephone, 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. So, Alex Honnold, you've... Uh, 
you've said that I think that probably a lot of uh, climbers would say this. Uh, you know, you're, you're sponsored. You're fortunate that way, but basically, you you climb for yourself. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, sponsorship is just um, a very lucky way to support my my climbing habit. But um, I still choose all my objectives myself and and sort of pursue my own path. And there is a community, tight knit community. I imagine you'd you'd see a lot of the same people around. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Both within the sponsor community and just the general mm-hmm. you know, dirt bike climbing community. But yeah. I definitely see all the same people. Well, because everybody follows the weather to the same sorts of areas. Mm-hmm. Everybody's sort of migrating with the seasons. Uh, so uh, it, it's fascinating to me why people do this. Is it? I guess I'll ask you why. Why do I rock climb at all? Why do you, Why do you rock climb at all? Yeah. I just love rock climbing. I mean, why do people have any kind of hobby or passion? You know, why do some people play instruments? Why do some people garden? Um, you know, I just really enjoy it. I find it very satisfying. Mm. I wonder if you'd tell me about uh, Moonlight Buttress. This is the first chapter in the book. This is yeah. really brought you fame. Yeah. This is uh, in Zion National Park. I think uh, people in Utah will be familiar with this. Yeah, I mean, uh, for anyone that's ever hiked Angel's Landing, which is one of the most beautiful trails in, in the whole world, I think, um, it's uh, it's basically the wall below Angel's Landing. It's uh, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful buttress, you know, one of the most striking crack systems in the world. And it was sort of the first big free solo that I did that was sort of, uh, you know, beyond what had been done before, um, just in terms of size and difficulty. Mm. And, and I don't know, I just I knew that I could do it, and I was, um, I'd actually spent the winter um, climbing Indian Creek outside of uh, Moab, Utah. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very similar style of, of rock, and I knew that I was, I was totally comfortable and prepared for it. And so I just went and uh, spent a few days working on it and then, and then executed it. Uh, tell me about how you work on something like this. What, what's your preparation? Well, so specifically for Moonlight, um, I just hiked up the Angel's Landing Trail, which is paved and super easy, and then uh, found the top of the route and then rappelled down with, with 600 feet of rope. And so then I could swing around on a rope and uh, practice the moves, you know, like mark some of the holds with chalk, things like that, just sort of make sure that uh, I know exactly what to do and what the sequence is and, you know, yeah, just figure it all out. Mm-hmm. Now this, uh, when you free soloed that, that that's, uh, really gave you a lot of fame. Um, how do you then go on to, to choose your next, I guess just whatever you want to do, right? You're not, you're yeah, not, exactly. you're not doing I mean, it for your career. For me, I've been sort of taking baby steps um, in terms of my own climbing, just things that are slightly harder, slightly, slightly bigger, slightly different, just anything that slowly broadens my comfort zone so I can, you know, sort of expand my own climbing world. What's, is there something out there you haven't done that you, that you want to do in the future? Yeah, I mean, there are tons of things out there, and I have whole yeah. lists of climbing areas around the world that I'd like mm-hmm. to travel to and, and, and climb on and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Still got horizons. That's, that's wonderful. Yeah, for sure. You recently turned 30. Yep. I believe, yep. and that's, 30. Uh, I don't know what kind of a milestone that is for a climber, how, how you know, how long you can go at the, at the top level. Um, and climbing has a lot more longevity than most sports, just because it's pretty low impact on your body, and there's such a technical element to it. So, I mean, I'll probably be still physically improving as a climber for the next, you know, five or ten years, and then I'm certainly, will still be, you know, traveling, climbing, doing expeditions, all that for, you know, I mean, potentially 20 more years. Hmm. I wonder, uh, working with David Roberts with, with this book, who I've, I've interviewed here on the program as well, he's, I think, in his 70s. And you'd... Yeah, actually, David, um, he's 72. So, I mean, he was an extensive climber in his day. I mean, he did 20 expeditions in a row to Alaska, and he's written a ton about uh, mountaineering and, and alpinism. 
his own experiences, and then he's also co-written a couple books with uh, Conrad Anker and, and uh, Ed Vesters, um, both of which I've, I've actually bought for myself when I was younger. So, I mean, I knew and respected his work, and um, I mean, and then David also profiled me for Outside Magazine in 2010, so, so he knew me, he knew my family, uh, he knew the whole story. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, interesting to have that perspective. And I wondered, do you think you project ahead? Some people do, some people don't. <laughs> In and well, out of the climbing mean? world, you, you project ahead to when you're 72. You know, and what, oh, <laughs> um, what you'll be doing. You, I mean, well, well, what do you mean exactly? Uh, you, you mean still be climbing, do you think? Yeah, no, I mean, for sure. Um, I, I mean, hopefully when I'm 72, I'm living in a my little family cabin in Lake Tahoe, like the same way my grandpa was, hanging out, feeding the birds, and, and playing cards with, with grandkids or something. Um, I mean, yeah, I definitely, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of can't wait to be an old person. In some ways, I already have the retired lifestyle, you know, since I can just kind of putter about when I want to. Mm-hmm. So right now, we're doing the book tour and, and trying to train so much, it doesn't feel that, that casual. But at other times of the year, when I'm in, in climbing mode, and I'm just like living at some cliff, and, you know, it feels like the retired lifestyle. Yeah. Anyway, I'm looking forward to maintaining that my whole life, hopefully. Yeah, yeah good. Um, uh, your your family's involved, right? There are pictures in the book, uh, your sister, company you want to climb, uh, your mother. Yep, yep. So, um, uh, mom is actually climbing fairly regularly. My sister is just, you know, has joined in for a few excursions here and there. She's just, you know, fit and enthusiastic, but she's not exactly a climber. But, uh, I mean, they both have... have done all kinds of interesting little mountains with me or, you know, random adventures over the years. Now, there's a climb in Yosemite you describe, uh, let's see, you have a picture of this, um, where you had to rappel down to where the climb started. Yeah. I guess you run into difficulties like that. And yeah, it, I mean, that's just, um, that, that route called the Phoenix is, uh, you know, pretty classic, historic route, very difficult, but um, it just happens that it's a crack you know, in the middle of a big granite wall, so you basically rappel several hundred feet to get to the beginning of it, and and you're already several hundred feet off the ground when you start. I guess that just... that, that's not totally uncommon for climbing. Oh. I mean, oh okay. You know, you have to go, you have to go where the where the rock is basically. Mm. So sometimes the good pieces are hidden in the middle of a cliff. Sometimes, you know, they're a long hike or, you know, just out in the backcountry. Like basically, you just have to go to the rock. That underlined for me this idea of commitment that. Once you start, that's it, isn't it? For for some climbs, I guess you can back climb on some, but but uh, you you just have to commit and go for it. Yeah, well, for, for the most part, I'm able to down climb at a okay. at a pretty high level. So um, so generally, I can go back down anything that I go up. Though I mean, you know, at times that just doesn't seem practical because if you're 1,800 feet up a wall and you only have you know 200 feet to go, you're like, well, I'd rather climb those 200 feet rather than go back down 1,800. Mm-hmm. But um. But it's very rare that you're 100% committed, like do or die. Um, okay. Actually, I mean, surprisingly. Because, I mean, climbing, you know, oftentimes I could just hold on and, you know, if I had to be rescued or something, I could just, like, hold on and wait for a day until somebody else climbs by. You could hold on for a day? Um, I mean, depending where you are. And, uh, you oh. know, there are often little ledges and little stances. And, you know, I mean, there's a lot going on on cliffs. So, I mean, there, there are places where I could, like, sit down and just rest and wait. Mm-hmm. I mean, it would be a terrible. You know, I mean, it would be a terrible experience to have to wait wait a whole day for somebody to come and get you, but but uh, you would survive. You know. Yeah. Uh, now, some as you say, some of your friends, and including a couple of friends who are, who are now gone, uh, combine uh, different sports. You know, rock climbing and base jumping. Uh, I've talked with Steph Davis, who uh, 
you know, uh, got into jumping out of airplanes uh, along with base jumping and, and rock climbing. That, that that those other sports have not appealed to you. No, well, she probably got out of got into jumping out of airplanes to learn how to base jump. Yeah, uh-huh. right. Wingsuit and all those things. Yeah. Um, and so I actually did the same thing. I I did my skydiving certification and jumped out of airplanes a handful of times, and uh, and learned how to do that and sort of realized how much would go into to feeling safe base jumping. Yeah, I sort of realized how much experience it would take for me to feel comfortable to jumping off cliffs, and I just decided it was too much for me and that I wasn't really interested. But. Not interested. You just prefer rock climbing, or there's something about base jumping you just don't not feel comfortable with. Yeah, base jumping. I mean, to me, just seems too sketchy, too too much chance involved, too risky, and it's, it's all just like too fast and too crazy. I mean, it's just not for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I just like wasn't wasn't willing to put in that kind of time. But or basically, the the amount of effort that would have to go into it, I would rather put that effort into rock climbing. Just you know, training for climbing in a conventional sense, and then just making sure I don't fall off things. Yeah. You know, by having that that physical reserve, like by feeling that much more fit, I figured that was safer for me than than trying to learn how to use a parachute. Well, when I talked with Steph Davis about her book, Learning to Fly, you know, she does both these things. It it, it seemed I don't know, it seemed kind of a opposite sports to me. That rock climbing, you're hanging on for dear life. Base yeah. jumping, you're letting go. Yeah, and not just that, but um, I, I mean, to me, I feel like the mindset's so different because climbing is so slow and methodical and and like peaceful, and then base jumping is so fast and such a rush and um, just such a I, I don't know. I mean, to me, it just seems totally outrageous. Uh, here's a question by email. This is Gary in Logan, who's emailed upraxcess at gmail.com. You can do as well upraxcess at gmail.com. If you just joined us, we're talking with Alex Hunold. Uh, you can see his amazing uh, videos. Uh, go to his website. That's good uh, starting place, alexhunold.com. One of the most famous adventures in the world at this point. His new book is Alone on the Wall. So here's what Gary uh, asks. Uh, where, are you, where is your favorite place to climb in Utah? That's a good question. There's so many good places to climb in Utah. Um, I think Zion is one of my favorites just because I think it's, I mean, I think it's the second most beautiful park in the country be, behind Yosemite. Um, but around Moab, I mean, Arches, Canyonlands, Indian Creek. Um, I, I mean, I love the the red sandstone desert. I guess. Though, I mean, even Salt Lake has has great climbing all around it. And uh, sandstone, you 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 like climbing sandstone? Yeah, I love. Well, the sandstone tends to to form into to really nice, perfect, perfectly parallel sided cracks. And so, um, climbing the cracks in, in in Utah. I mean, Utah is a global destination for crack climbing. Mm-hmm. And people come from all over the world to climb to climb sandstone cracks in Utah. Yeah, there's a picture in the book. Uh, you're you're on top of a sandstone formation, which later fell <laughs> fell over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sandstone is uh, slightly less stable than other types of rock. Yeah, yeah. In geological terms, it's it's uh, almost liquid. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Gary goes on. Where's your favorite place to climb in the world? Um, I think my favorite in the world is probably Yosemite. Mm-hmm. Um, partially just because it's close to home. Uh, in California, you know, it's near where I grew up in Sacramento. And uh, I mean, and honestly, I think it's just the most beautiful place in the world. And here's the third question from Gary. He, he asks, uh, what do you recommend, uh, uh, recommendations for someone to begin rock climbing? What would your advice be? I mean, the easiest way to start climbing is just to go into the climbing gym and play around and learn the basics, just because it's such a safe and controlled and, and comfortable place to learn. Uh, yeah, I mean... And, you know, and now there's so many good gyms everywhere. And, and actually, Utah has, has a wealth of, of 
really nice climbing gyms. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very accessible way to pick up climbing. And what kind of exercise do you have to, I guess you, you're, I could imagine your your hands, your fingers have to be very strong. No, no, I mean, uh, to, to learn climbing um, at a very basic level, climbing is more in your legs. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, your legs are propelling you up the wall. Your hands are just a matter of keeping your body in the right position so that you can you can push with your legs, since the muscles in your legs are so much bigger. So, I mean, any any beginner should be able to climb at a basic level just by just by focusing on their footwork and focusing on their feet and, you know, pushing themselves up the wall. Hmm. Then what about making the transition outside to find some friends who have some experience and get, get with some people? Is that yeah, that, that's kind of the easiest way is, um, is to make friends in the gym and have somebody take you outside because uh, there's fair amount of gear required for it and so it's easier just to find somebody who owns everything already um, and who's willing to, to take you out and sort of show you the basics though i mean you could also hire a guide um, i mean there are a lot of ways you could go about it but i mean the way i did was just climbing indoors all the time and then sort of making friends and then going out with the friends and, and learning how to use their gear and then eventually picking up all the gear for yourself once you actually know what you're doing mm-hmm. uh it, it to your knowledge is the sport growing um, I'd like to think my knowledge of the sport is growing. But, <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, is is the uh, is the sport growing? I guess. Oh, to, to my knowledge. Yeah, to your, yeah, yeah sorry. For sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The sport is definitely. I mean, since I started climbing, there are just so many new gyms, and there's so many people climbing in gyms, and there's such an urban scene to climbing now, uh, which I think is great. I mean, I think it's a super fun way to to just stay fit in the city. You know, and I love bouldering gyms, and, and I love everything that's, like, popping up around the country now. The mm-hmm. facilities are so nice now, and there are just so many more people doing it. Yeah. And as you say uh, to my, my other question, which came out badly, I, I would suppose your, your knowledge of rock climbing is growing. What do you, are, are there frontiers there? Do you, I guess every time you go out, you learn something, or? Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the frontiers for me, for me personally, are, are, are further afield now, I suppose. Um, I mean, so... I, you know, whenever you go climbing, I look, part of the appeal of going climbing is like having a big adventure, you know, having something that pushes you outside your comfort zone and, and you know, feels exciting or different or new. It feels like you're learning a lot. And so for me now, uh, you know, it takes something more, you know, I have to go a little further to, to really push myself just because my comfort zone has, has, has grown so much over the years, I guess. But, um, but so for me, things like alpinism, like going into the real mountains with, with glaciers and ice axes and all those kinds of things, you know, that's something that I'm not very comfortable with because I have very little experience. And so that still feels very adventurous. And I mean, there are definitely still still things I can do that feel, you know, fresh and new and exciting and climbing for me. Tell me about the difference. Uh, you, you got into a few times in alpinism. How, how is that different from, from the climbing you would do normally? Well, you know, I'm from suburban California. I'm used to climbing in warm, warm sun, climbing in shorts and no shirt. Yeah. Um, alpinism is you know, a lot more involved with, with more tools and crampons, ice axes, um, you know, and the, the medium is a lot more variable. Ice is, uh, you know, a very, very uncertain thing. But, I mean, the basic principles of climbing are still the same. I mean, you're still just climbing climbing up something, but um, it's just that I don't have a ton of practice with it, and so it still feels pretty exciting. I'd like to talk a little bit about this earlier. I'd like to address this uh, a little more head-on. A uh, couple of stereotypes so you know some people say well you know rock climbers like yourself you're adrenaline junkies yeah no i mean i think i think that's incorrect Uh um mostly just i mean i would i would challenge that person to just go climbing a bit and sort of experience the whole thing but i've always felt like climbing is much more of a slow 
meditative, you know, contemplative. I mean, climbing is a very slow sport because it's against gravity. And so, you know, something like skiing could feel like an adrenaline rush because you just sort of strap on your skis and go and you just bomb down the mountain. It's super fast. It's very, you know, it's very exciting. With climbing, it's sort of the opposite because you have to like laboriously pull yourself up the wall, you know, move by move. And it's, it just doesn't have that, that element of speed to it. It just doesn't seem like a rush in the same way. Here's another one. Uh, this is I'll just quote David Roberts. This is in a Q&A that, uh, that he had with you. Uh, David Roberts says, During my 35 years as an adventure journalist, I've interviewed or profiled a lot of the best climbers in the world. A majority of them seem to be egomaniacs. Is this your experience with the top climbers? How have you avoided that narcissistic uh, flap or trap? I don't know. I mean, I actually would kind of challenge David on that. I mean, I don't really think that the majority of top climbers, I mean, that might be true for some some mountaineers and, you know, people that climb 8,000-meter peaks, like the big expeditions, just because it might require a different kind of personality to spearhead those big expeditions. But I think that actual rock climbing um, really keeps people humble just because you're out in the elements all the time and, and you're constantly hanging out on these really big cliffs and you're just like a tiny little person on a really big cliff. I mean, I think it reminds you of the fragility of things and, and how, how delicate your life is to some extent. And honestly, just getting worked by weather all the time makes you feel very small. Mm. You know, I mean, no matter how rad you feel, as soon as it starts to rain when you're on a cliff, you're just like, oh, no, mommy, help. I'm cold <laughs> and I'm wet and I want to go home. You know, I mean, it, it definitely doesn't lend itself to, to feeling like the man. And, and you've got more to climb, probably, in those situations. Yeah, I mean, oftentimes. Yeah. Let's take, uh, let's take another break. When we come back, uh, more with Alex Honnold. I want to hear about uh, Patagonia and some of the other climbs. Uh, we'll hear more. Uh, he describes uh, several of his big climbs in the book, Alone on the Wall. Uh, Alex Honnold, um, you can find out more at alexhonnold.com. By the way, he'll be in Utah on December 2nd. He'll be at REI in Salt Lake City from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. on December 2nd. You can join the conversation here at 1-800-826-1495 by email to upraxcess at gmail.com and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. Programming on Utah Public Radio was made possible in part by our members and Utah State University Advancement. Participating in Giving Tuesday, December 1st, providing an opportunity for alumni and friends to embrace the giving spirit this holiday season. Information at usu.edu slash giving Tuesday. Consider the human species. We're not very strong. We can't climb very well. We don't swim very well. We can't fly. So how did we make it to the top of the food chain? We came up with the weirdest adaptation probably in the animal kingdom. It's the ability to sweat. We were running other animals to death using our endurance running prowess. I'm Guy Raz. Adaptation, that's next time on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Join us Monday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. On this Thanksgiving, make some time for music, food for the soul, with a seasonal program featuring the rich voices of the nine men of Contus. I'm Allison Young. Join me for a conversation and music from this premier vocal ensemble on APM's Thanksgiving with Contus. Join us Thanksgiving evening at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. My guest is Alex Honnold. His book just out is Alone on the Wall. 
in which he describes seven of his most astonishing achievements thus far, including free soloing Sendero Luminoso in Mexico, climbing Fritz Travers in Patagonia. And uh, we have another uh, about uh, six minutes left with uh, Alex Honnold. You can join the conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com by telephone to 1-800-826-1495. And you can join us on Twitter at uh, as well. Uh, Alex Honnold, what if you could describe for me Sendero, Sendero Luminoso? It's, you look at the pictures, it looks just incredible. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful route. It's, um, Sendero is a 1,500-foot route up a big limestone tower, basically, in Mexico. And then there's actually another 1,000 feet of wall above it um, to get you to the top of the mountain. Because uh, normally when, when you climb Sendero, you climb the 1,500-foot tower and then you rappel back down it. But since uh, when I free soloed it, you know, rappelling is not an option since I don't have a rope. So I had to continue all the way to the top so I could hike off. And uh, I mean, it's a big adventure. It's sort of the most the most striking line on this whole mountain range in Mexico, mm. outside of Monterey. What about Fitztraverse in Patagonia? That seems incredible. Um, the Fitztraverse is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. Um, I mean, it's like an entire mountain range uh, outside of Chaltén in, in southern Argentina, um, in, in Patagonia. But so I mean, it's just amazing, beautiful granite spires, with uh, you know, covered with ice and snow, and towering above big glaciers. It's, uh, I mean, at that climb, I was climbing with Tommy Caldwell, and, uh, and it took us four and a half days of continuous climbing to, to traverse the ridge. So you, uh, what do you do? You take a climb with a little tent or something? To yeah, so we, we each had backpacks with um, a tent. Uh, we, we were sharing one sleeping bag. We, uh, you know, we didn't have pads or anything. We were just sleeping on rocks and, you know, putting our ropes underneath us to try to pad us out a little bit. Um, you know, stove, food. Very, very basic, super light camping setup. There, you've been to some very exotic places. You've uh, climbed in Chad, for example. Yep, yep, yeah. I've been on expeditions sort of all around the world, but some of the experiences have been pretty uh, formative. Are there difficulties with, uh, say, the government in some of these places, getting permits and such, or um, generally maybe okay? Some, though that's never really been an issue for me, uh-huh. and and many of them have been um, expeditions for National Geographic or for other you know, publications like that. So, I mean, in general, countries are pretty, pretty, uh, you know, grateful to have you come and, and promote tourism or, you know, do things like that. Yeah, I would imagine. Uh, what about uh, speed climbing? You've done some, you've broken some speed records. What are, what are you doing there? Just an extra test on your skills? What? No, actually, um, it's sort of the opposite. Most of the speed records that I've broken are more a byproduct of the style in which I'm climbing. It's not so much okay. that I'm climbing super fast or, or that I'm even climbing any different at all. It's just that um, I'm climbing it in a way that nobody necessarily has climbed it before, and so it winds up being quite a bit faster, quite a bit more efficient. Mm. But so most of my speed records aren't aren't because I was climbing fast, like physically moving quickly. It's just because I was climbing very efficiently, like not stopping. Mm. I wonder if you could uh, maybe select a future challenge. Tell us about that. Uh, well, so uh, this uh, winter I'm have... going back to Patagonia for a month. Um, the Fitzgerald, which is like one of the biggest things in my climbing, and that's kind of what the what the book Alone on the Wall sort of culminates with. Um, that was two years ago, and then last year I went back to Patagonia with a different partner and tried to do something slightly more challenging, and uh, we wound up failing just a few hundred feet away from the summit of Saratora, um, just because the weather got crazy and we, we were unable to continue climbing. And so um, this year, I mean, we're actually just buying our tickets right now to go to go try to try to finish that. Oh, that'll be uh, yeah. We'll we'll keep our eyes on on that. What do you? I think you've worked through, thought through some of these issues of uh, you know sustainability uh, and the climate, 
and uh, trying to reduce the, the footprints of your expeditions? Yeah. Uh, tell yeah, me I mean, so a, few, a few years ago, I started the Hama Foundation, which was just my attempt at sort of giving back to environmental nonprofits. But, um, I mean, in general, I try to minimize my impact on the earth and, you know, do as, as little harm as possible. Uh, so tell me about the uh, the Honolulu Foundation. What, uh, what sorts of projects do you do? Well, so just two months ago, we got back from an expedition to Angola um, in, in uh, Western Africa, where we were sort of doing a joint climate exploration slash off-grid solar project. We were just trying to show that the that the solar industry was viable in Angola and a, and a good way to, to help, you know, give people access to power in, in remote villages. Um, I mean, basically, though, we're just trying to find uh, environmental projects that, that improve standard of living, you know, environmental projects that, like, lift people out of poverty. Now, there's a there's project uh, caught my attention here. I found this on your website. Uh, it's near Utah. That's why it caught my attention. The Navajo Nation here, you're yeah, northern Arizona. Northern Arizona. So a lot of the Navajo Nation, they, they live off the grid, not necessarily by choice. Yeah, shockingly, uh, I think there are 18,000 people living in the Navajo Reservation with no access to power, which is pretty insane when you think about it, because, I mean, they're basically, I mean, I mean people in, in the U.S., but living in, you know, I mean, full developing world conditions. It's just, like, hard to imagine. And so you're bringing, the foundation brings solar power to them? Is what, uh, what are you doing? Well, in, in that particular project, um, the foundation was um, supporting Elephant Energy, which is a nonprofit that's worked with the Navajo um, a bit in a, few, in a few different regions. And it was sort of a multi-dimensional project, but, but basically providing solar panels and, uh, you know, providing free lights and all those kinds of things. But then also sort of enabling local entrepreneurs to sell the systems and educating kids about it. And like this, like I said, a multi-dimensional project. But I mean, but I mean, at the heart of it, it's about giving people access to power. Mm-hmm. Uh, what what what's future goals? Is continuing projects like this with the foundation? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we're still sort of finding our niche and finding what we do best. But I feel like the Angola project was a pretty good example of uh, you know sort of finding the frontier of solar, like trying to to help people in places where nobody's really gone exactly. And so I think next year we'll probably do um, a larger scale project in Africa, um, same sort of thing, sort of sort of trying to combine climate exploration with with the community, you know, in real need. Uh, last question here. We're coming to the end of the program. What's what are you what are you up to next? What's the next What's the next climb? Oh, I mean, like I was saying, I guess Patagonia is sort of my next big adventure. Uh, I mean, I'm finishing up my book tour right now, and I'm sort of in training mode, just you know, trying to gain physical strength while while I tour, and then uh, I'll sport climb for the winter, and then and then hopefully go to Patagonia and climb something big and hard and scary. Uh, how do you keep up your training while you're on a book tour kind of a thing? Uh, a lot of motivation. You know, gyms. Yeah. I'm, I'm actually traveling with a hangboard, which is like a small wooden board that you can hang from, from various grips to like isolate finger strength. So um, so I'm traveling with my hangboard, and, and I just work out on a on a proper schedule. Yeah. You know, but it takes a lot of motivation to, to make it to the gym in, be- in between all these different events. And then, uh, as you say, uh, soon you'll be climbing something big and scary. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah. All hopefully right. That's well, what keeps you motivated. Yeah. yeah. We'll uh, keep our eye on this. Uh, the book, uh, good read. It's uh, with David Roberts, Alex Honnold, Alone on the Wall. He describes his uh, seven uh, biggest uh, uh, achievements uh, so far. More to come, of course. The website is alexhonnold.com. And Alex Honnold will be in Utah. He is uh, going to be at REI in Salt Lake City, December 2nd, from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Uh, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Pleasure, pleasure chatting. Uh, and I hope you join me tomorrow. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, Chairman of the Board, Old Blue Eyes. 
the entertainer of the century. We're talking about Frank Sinatra. His 100th birthday is coming up. It's December 12th, 2015. And uh, a uh, massive biography is out. The second volume is called Sinatra, the Chairman. James Kaplan will be telling me Sinatra stories. We'll hear some Sinatra music. That is tomorrow on Access Utah. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. Welcome to Wild About Utah, a Utah Public Radio production featuring contributors who share a love of nature, preservation, and education. Many think of the desert as a hot, dry, barren, and unforgiving place. However, Utah's deserts are chock full of interesting and diverse plants and animals. One such plant, which grows throughout much of Utah, is Rus trilobata, or three-leaf sumac. Three-leaf sumac is a widespread deciduous shrub in the Rus genus, meaning with three leaflets, or trifoliate leaves. Others in this genus include Rus aromatica and the infamous western poison oak. The three leaves of this shrubby-type plant are toothed, feel stiff, and they give off quite a strong scent when crushed. The strong smell of crushed three-leaf sumac leaves has earned it the nickname skunk bush, as well as ill-scented sumac. Three-leaf sumac is a low-spreading, many-branched, deciduous shrub, usually no more than three feet high but spreading as much as eight feet wide. The small trifoliate leaves and the branches are fuzzy. Given its many branches, three-leaf sumac provides both nesting material and structure for native bees. Flowers are yellowish and found in clustered spikes. They are followed by bright crimson to reddish sticky berries. The fall foliage adds an extra pop of color to the landscape. Historically, three-leaf sumac has been used for medicinal and other purposes. The bark can be chewed or brewed into a drink for cold symptoms. Flexible branches were traditionally used for twisting into basketry and rugs. In fact, three-leaf sumac was a close contender to willow in desirability for basket making. This common use of the plant earned it another nickname, basket bush. My favorite part of three-leaf sumac, however, are the slightly hairy and sticky berries. Although historically eaten for gastrointestinal pain and toothache, the berries have a delicious sour flavor and can be eaten plain or used in oatmeal, ice cream, steeped in tea, or soaked in cold water to make a beverage similar to lemonade. These berries are high in vitamin C and have earned three-leaf sumac the additional nicknames of sourberry, lemonade bush, and lemonade berry. Other nicknames for this multi-purpose plant include squaw bush, desert sumac, or scented sumac. Regardless of which nickname you choose for three-leaf sumac, give the berries a try and see for yourself what you think. Be sure, however, that you properly identify the plant to avoid potential illness that can be caused by misidentification. One great resource that can help is the field guide, Rocky Mountain States, Wild Berries and Fruits. For Utah State University Extension Sustainability, this is Rosalind Brain. Wild About Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. For transcripts and archived audio of Wild About Utah, go online to upr.org and click on the Wild About Utah link. The holiday season is supposed to bring us joy as a time for celebration and being together with family. But for some, as the holiday season approaches, the stress outweighs the joy. We want to hear from you. Tell us how you're feeling about the upcoming holiday season. Utah Public Radio has partnered with the Salt Lake Tribune and American Public Media to create the Utah Public Insight Network a database of people whose one-of-a-kind experiences, ideas, and expertise 
can help us better report and tell stories that matter. Let us know how you feel about the upcoming holidays. Visit upr.org and click on Become a Source. Faking happiness at work can have some real side effects, you know. Often these kinds of uh, workers get mistreated by customers and they still have to maintain that smile. There's an uneven exchange. I'm Kai Rizdal. The costs of grinning and bearing it next time on Marketplace from APM. Join us Monday night at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Jill Deacon in for Shad. Alessia Cara is the latest pop star to emerge from Canada. I'm going to speak with her about her sudden success and about how she stays grounded through it all. That is coming up on Q, plus lots more from PRI Public Radio International. Join us Monday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. work, relationships, health, child-rearing, all benefit from embracing gratitude. Gratitude is this rich, complex emotion that we can pin that to a specific location of the brain is amazing to me. Hi, I'm Susan Sarandon. Join me for the science of gratitude from PRI, Public Radio International. Friday, 9 a.m. and 7 p.m. on Utah Public Radio. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. And thank you for listening to Access Utah today on Utah Public Radio. The time now is 10 o'clock. Stay tuned to TED Radio Hour.